I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Podcast. Today's podcast is with Jaeger Kovic. It's been a while since I talked with Jaeger. Uh, he's a friend, a young up and coming golf architect. He is, uh, last time we talked to him, it was uh, in 2019. So a lot has happened. He's kind of gotten his own solo design company up and going. Uh, so it was fun checking in, talking some nitty gritty uh, design stuff, as well as he did a power rankings for uh, Scotland and England, you know, areas for travel. So if you're looking to book a trip, that's a, a good little segment where we, we talk about the different areas of, uh, of the UK. Sorry, Ireland. Uh, he hadn't been. I haven't been. So there was no nobody pulling for Ireland there. But before we get into this, I wanted to do a little update. A few weeks ago, I did uh, top 10 you know, players to watch going into the Masters, kind of my top 10. We're, we're close. We're two weeks away. I can't believe it. Really, like almost a week away from, from the ma- it being Masters week. Uh, it's crazy how much it sneaks up on you. So I wanted to do an update. Obviously, we since then, we've had a lot of terms. We have Bay Hill. We've got match play this week. We had the players a couple weeks ago. So here is the updated top 10 uh, players to watch at Augusta National. Number 10. I'm really trying not to overreact here, but Justin Thomas. Uh, this has been a really disappointing start to 2023. I think with all the news and golf, this has been obscured a little bit. He hasn't been very good, and obviously he won a major last year. I don't know what's going on with his game. Uh, he's 53rd in strokes gained approach and 143rd in putting. Obviously, it's early in the year. But when you wonder why JT hasn't really been contending, that's why. He's one of the lead players of the game. For reference, last year he was 8th and 85th in those two categories. He's never going to be a great putter. I mean, I it, he had one really great year putting, and that's when he won a ton. I think that was the year he won five times. He's more of the type of player when he puts well, he's going to probably win or finish very highly. The thing that's alarming to me is the driver distance. I uh, And obviously it's early in the year. He's played some cold, colder weather places, you know, that West Coast swing. But he's 13 yards shorter than he was last year. And that to me is is a little bit alarming. I think that probably is why he's kind of dipped in strokes gained off the tee also, as well as approach and putting. And uh, but still, the trend line is right at Augusta National. Hopefully, we see something out of him this week, or uh, you know, it, it'd be fun to have him in contention. He's one of the most fun players to watch play golf. So that's uh, Justin Thomas, number ten, number nine, Jordan Spieth. Obviously, near win at the Valspar, played really well at um at at the Players at Bay Hill. Also, this guy's he's he's. Rounding into form and and the record at Augusta National speaks for itself. So I think like what's been uber impressive to me, the ball strike has been really good the last few weeks. And if the putter can get hot, I mean, he's going to be in the mix. Number seven, Jason Day. 
It's an amazing year. Amazing resurgence for Jason Day. This is one of the stories of the year. Him and Ricky are playing a lot better golf. It doesn't look like Ricky's going to get into the field at the Masters unless something crazy happens this weekend and or next week. But Jason Day, has uh, he's back. His worst finish in this year is T19. He's basically been in contention in the mix at every event he's played in 2023. And uh, if you go look through his Masters uh, career record, he's basically in the mix every time he plays in the Masters. So I really love his chances at Augusta National. Uh, that would have been a nice buy low candidate a few weeks ago. I'm sure his odds have really uh, soared. Zalatoris, Will Zalatoris, he clocks in at number uh, seven. So obviously, he's just a different player at the majors. He hasn't been great this year. He played really well at Riviera. Um I think that's enough for me. Obviously, the putter wasn't very good at the players, but if he is, uh, if he's doing anything decent on the putting green, the way he hits the ball, he's probably going to be in the mix. Uh, up to number six, Colin Morikawa. He's obviously had some disappointing weekends. I think the players, people were expecting him after that first round to kind of run away, and Kapalua was really disappointing way to start the year uh, with that kind of Sunday collapse. But he's playing so well in the sense that, like, he's just ready for a breakout. He finished third last year at the Masters. I, you know, anywhere that puts an emphasis on approach play like Augusta National does, you have to love Colin Morikawa. Uh, we're up to number five, Cam Smith. I said it would be really hard for him to move out outside my top four. It is hard for me to move him outside the top four, but, like, God, you know, these live events, he's the big name players aren't even in the mix. It's kind of crazy. Like he, he hasn't contended in a, in a golf tournament since he played those Australian events over the winter, the Australian open and the Australian PGA. And even so, like, you know, he won, I think he won the Australian PGA, but like, I don't know. We haven't, you know, he played really well right at the beginning of the live. It, it hasn't been good for Cameron Smith. And, and I just wonder like all the big name live guys, like is guaranteed money and off seasons good. We'll see. I think, you know, if one of them wins, wins the Masters, that'll change the way we talk about Liv uh, significantly. But right now, it, it just hasn't seemed very good for these for these big names at Liv. Uh, obviously, the courses haven't been great fits, especially for a guy like Cam Smith, the last two. And Augusta's about the perfect course fit. That's why he's still five. He hasn't been playing well. He hasn't been playing very much. And uh, I, I have to think the guy's playing real competitive golf um, leading into the Masters have an advantage. Um, up to number four, I he has not his best finish at a major is T13, Max Homa. He's playing too well to ignore this. He's up to sixth in the world. His finishes on the year are third, first, 39th, second, 14th, and sixth. Guys played well at a lot of different golf courses, a lot of different events, and uh, I think he's going to play well at Augusta National. He's just so well-rounded. Every every aspect of his game is strong right now. Number three, Rory McIlroy. He's making some changes to the putter, making some changes to the driver. I think like it's hard to forget that three months ago he was the undisputed number one player in the world. So with that with that in mind, I'm I'm sticking with Rory here at three. I think he's going to get stuff figured out before the uh, the Masters. Remember last year he he missed the cut the week before and we were wondering what you know what's wrong with Rory and then he finished second best finish of his career really at uh Augusta National with that 63 on on Sunday John Rahm it, it this feels really weird having Rahm number two he's won three times this year but 
the guy ahead of him is just playing really well. So Rom is number two right now because Scotty Scheffler, I just wonder, are we just watching last year on repeat? If he goes and wins the uh, the match play this week, I, it would be just shocking. And, uh, you know, But again, just I think his personality, Garrett did a great pod last week on uh, Scheffler. I think it lulls us to sleep a little how brilliant this guy is and his approach to the game is um, is really, I think, advantageous. And he's he's got two wins and uh, big wins. And the players was like a clinic. And you go into Augusta, that short game, all around skill set. Love him. Love him in a title defense. But, you know, obviously with Rom, I think Rom and him are, are kind of 1A, 1B right now. And uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Rory's got it straightened out by the Masters. So that's your top 10. And here's Jaeger Kovic. I went back and listened to our conversation and I realized like the first thing that stood out to me was the timing of it. It was like October of 2019. It was the uh, fall at Wingfoot, right? Yeah. And And then Bryson won like nine months later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not nine. It was like almost like almost a full year later. It was like 11 months later. What year did you say it was? 2019. Because then it was the COVID hit. And then yeah, it was the a fall, yeah, fall, fall U.S. Open, and I was just thinking about all the crazy stuff that's happened since then, and uh, you know, just wild times. And obviously, you're in a, a lot different career place than you were then. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty different, I would say for sure. Um, one of the things you were talking about on that podcast was the apprehension of building your first green at Egertown. Um, and now obviously you have a bunch of jobs, um, and you've got a lot of greens under your belt. Can you walk us through the experience of kind of getting experience, building your first green, but then also now building a a lot of greens? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's, uh, well, I, I guess, you know, simple as that was, we built that green right at the beginning of COVID, it was literally during the shutdown when we got special permission to, well, not special permission, but we were eventually granted as like essential work and were able to complete that in March or April, I think of that 2020 COVID years, that correct. Um, and so, you know, this past fall, we, ended up building, uh, I guess, four new greens at Cedarbrook and doing a project that's, you know, a good 10 times larger uh, in the general scope of things. And, you know, I kind of came away from that telling, you know, something about bike. I, I felt that like pretty much I'm just super really confident in the ability to design shape and, you know, I felt like the greens at Cedarbrook uh, turned out about as well as anything I'd really ever built in my career. And um, just really kind of <laughs> feel like finally firing sort of on all cylinders in terms of like um, full design shape, proper golf operation at this point. Uh, 2019 was, you know, that was really the beginning of the full solo career entirely for me i think that summer right after Edgartown, i probably built a couple bunkers at baltus roll with gill and 
one or two other small things that summer. Why, uh, but that was basically the beginning of proper golf only work. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's very different. That's for sure. Yeah. With that, with the building greens, like what's been the, what was the toughest thing about building your first green versus, you know, the, the greens you built this fall? Well, I mean, I'm not sure that there was anything much tougher about it. I had definitely shaped greens and built greens previously, but doing it entirely for yourself the first time, trying to make sure I've definitely found over time that I'm probably always trying to focus on making pinnable space work more and more and more and slow things down. And, you know, if it was like, 3%, how can we stretch things and broaden things and soften things to make it closer to 2% or the fine line of 2.7 and 2.9s at some of these places, they don't work. Um, And so just making sure that stuff continues to, you don't want to do all this work and spend all this money. And, you know, I always like to say that fractions of an inch matter, um, especially when greens are rolling it, you know, 11, 12, whatever, um, you know, all the things that you don't like um, <laughs> and harp on about. But like, that's what's, that's what's truly is the difference is a fraction of an inch can make the difference of 2.5, 2.7, 2.9. And that's what makes a third of your green work or doesn't work. And that's, that's what matters the most. Um, so how, how do you go about making that change? What is that when you're on like a sand pro? Is that what is going on with the, how do you make oh, those fractions? The, the whole, it, it's, you know, kind of from start to finish, certainly when you're in a green well and, you know, it's starting on the bulldozer and roughing in pretty much as getting it as close and as close and as close as I can with the big bulldozer. And I'm shooting grades through it. And I know generally where I want, I'm trying to get hole locations. Um, and then I have the laser out there and I jump off the dozer once I feel like everything's pretty close and I'm in a green well. So you're working the subgrade of it 16 inches below the finish grade. Um, and it's just so super important that the layers are perfectly matching like all the way through. That's what, you know, the superintendent's want that's how the usga green performs its best um so you really got to get it as absolutely perfect as you can at the bottom and then you really only want to play with the last inch or so at the top um you don't want to screw up those those layers um and especially getting it right in the bottom so it's getting everything roughed in with not it's really finely graded with the bulldozer all the false fall-offs and everything um and then shooting grades and i'm basically taking three three paces um and shooting a grade um because three paces is about 10 feet 10 feet lets you do pretty simple slope calculations of you know two three percent here there as you're moving the laser up tenths of a foot um so you know you're trying to truly almost make a grid of 10 foot sort of spacing in certain cases of where you want hole locations and then you know, if you've got a giant tier, I mean, I, I've fixed a few of these like sort of two tier kind of greens because the tiers end up so damn steep that like you put from one side and then the ball rolls off the front of the green and you don't get that right. So you can't just fudge the whole locations. You sometimes have to lay the whole thing back. And if you end up chopping two inches down in the front to make everything work, now you got to take that and 
carry that extra two inch grade all the way through the approach and through and how it ties into the bunkers and everything. So you get it all set with the dozer and then I'll go even further and bring my excavator with the knuckle bucket in and to fine tune it like to a really extreme degree of like, you know, we're, what are we talking millimeters yeah, I, mean, I guess centimeters yeah it's probably in the centimeter sort of range or um or, or less to get those details right and then you let the guys come in and do the drainage and then they drain it and they drive all over the thing and they try to keep it pretty cl- as clean as they possibly can and they rake everything fine-tunedly from there and then you go up and you got to check it again in the stone um once everything goes back and then uh once the stone you know is perfect and that base four inches of the USGA green. Um, they go up with the mix and then you can probe the mix perfectly and see if it's 12 inches here or there. And that's when you get into the sand pro and I use a four foot digital smart level. Um, so you regrid everything with the big laser and then super, super fine details with that. Um, you can't have any water sitting still. Some places you need water moving, you know, a certain percentage uh so you don't get ice damage when you're freezing thaw in massachusetts here there uh spilling off the front of the green that was an issue so it's a lot of different you know fractions of a percent here or there but that's what makes the difference and you know sometimes when you know people don't get that right is when 20 years later we'll come back and we fix it god that's that Honestly, like sounds like my worst nightmare is that uh, level of uh, attention to detail throughout a very long process. <laughs> but that's I, that's the stuff that matters the most. Right. Yeah. I mean, it truly you can't I, I don't know how you would possibly have gotten to some of this level of intricacy of detail in a grading plan or plans or handed over to anybody or even just got it this close. And then what do we do? Chop out the, you know, you wanted to accentuate the false front and the way something, the green drapes over like so much. And now the superintendent's left with like six inches of mix and it's burning up in the front of his green. Like that's not good. So it's just kind of, I think what it takes, that's where like the real architecture really is. Right. I mean, you put, crazy edges on bunkers all day long and you put tongues and I'll do whatever, but like you got to get to the green somehow. And those, those last fractions of an inch are what make the world a difference. You obviously have gone from, uh, as you alluded to really like jumped off the cliff and into your own work as a individual architect on your own. Um, what's been the toughest aspect of that over the last few years? Um, the toughest, I don't know if there's like a, the toughest thing. I think it's, um, uh, I've gone through, you know, just a few different learning processes and things. I think one of the things that I've always worried the most about, um, is making sure we get all the budgets and everything is perfectly organized and predicted as possible. Certainly, Every, you know, everybody, everybody's known about all the crazy price jumps and all the crazy, you know, every material and contractors and everything. It's, it's really difficult uh, to sort everything out and predict the cost of materials and the scope of work and what 
what everything's going to come into um, months, sometimes years in advance. So um, going through and just getting better at that stuff has been a big thing for me over the last couple of years. And I feel super confident really in it now. Um, you know, that big project at Cedarbrook, we came in, you know, just a just the right amount under. Um, so that was nice. Uh, the last, few, you know, and the thing is, is like, if you're not doing a brand new golf course or a giant like project, it's hard to manage, you know, you can't like chop something out at the end. If you have like a two week project and you're building, like, there's no place to hide it. You get one bill and it's over, but like a bigger project, you can make this bunker smaller, that bunker smaller. And this screen, you know, can change size and it can change the the price here, there if, as you go. But um, so there's that stuff. There's also just generally getting better at the proposal process um, and the sort of sales and like that sort of portion. You know, it's certainly different when you have a handful or two projects versus two projects. Um, I have, you know some guys that have uh, been helping me uh, certainly over the last year. I have uh, uh, Nick, who's been helping me with plans uh, and graphics um, over the last year and is now, you know, his role is increased uh, a lot. Um, so trying to figure that out, but I've had people help on site too. So trying to figure out how to manage and do some more of that stuff while keeping that level of, I can get the last, centimeter perfect on the greens and do things the super hands-on way that I've been doing since that hand-drawn plan that Edgar Town and the hand-built and hand-rake, you know, everything. Um, so that's, that's the hardest part is keeping up with the entire program. It's, it sounds like it's, it's figuring out things that you can afford to let go of that allows you to, to focus on the things that you have to do, you, you know? Yeah, haven't really let go of too much, but a little bit. Uh, yeah, <laughs> waiting to the last. Yeah, till it's absolutely impossible. But um, you know, I, there's no doubt. You know, found the right person who's been making the work better and adding um, has made everything better for me, for the clients, for the work. So um, it's not really about letting go. It's just about making it better um, for everybody because the work, the graphics look better. The work with better to get more time um yeah i feel like something that's drastically changed really in the last 24 months with golf architecture is the graphics and the plans you know i i am a romantic for the the maps and just the simple drawings but there is this new era of you know especially i think with with clubs showing clubs with using some you know digital renderings uh using video game software to redesign yeah. holes like to me it seems like that's something that's really changed a ton what how do you guys go about presenting your your the things that you want to change to a club or a a somebody that's trying to build their own golf course everybody sort of has a different version of what is a master plan, right? Everybody, you know, sometimes it's like one list large thing with some notes on it. Sometimes it's, you know, you've probably seen the 18 individual graph paper kind of things uh, that Gil does with the whole notes. Um, and, you know, I've kind of started with that and they've now sort of been 
branching out and doing a, more of like a master plan sort of book um, where the meat of the thing is 18 individual holes and practice range and stuff that's all done generally on some sort of grid with notes. Um, what I've basically been doing is uh, I take my drone and I fly it over and make an exact aerial photograph of each each individual hole that we're working on at the club, one through 18. And then I use that to make my base map and I set it at scale. Um, and then I start making my field notes on top of that. Um, and eventually, you know, I build out into a hand-drawn thing that shows what's there. It shows what's changing and gives you the sort of whole notes on the side. A lot of times it also has like a green detail, which shows you, you know, the size of expansions or in some cases, you know, what a new green concept might look like. But so what I've done with my books is generally I make that sort of the left page of the book and the right page becomes a little bit more, you know, a couple broad strokes um, details of, you know, why we might be doing this or that to the green why we, you know, a couple of little things and then some supporting photographs, maybe of your second hole after it got flooded while we were working on the master plan over the course of the year. And you can see these certain things Or I took a photo a couple of weeks ago of a tree that, you know, they told me it was a great tree and it was pivotal. And I went up to it and not only was it rotten on one side, when I turned around, like I took a photo and there's like a hole through it. Like you could see an entire hole through the thing. And I'm like, well, how are they going to argue that this is safe? So, you know, that's why some, you know, or, you know, and then a lot of times what we also do is I'll layer in, like I'm wearing my Morris County hat right now. So that uh, has a few supporting like historic photos. Uh, so it has the 1930 aerial photograph right next to the plan. So you can see that my plan looks just like that 1930s and you can see what's actually being restored or not. And it might have a note that calls out this, that, or the other thing um, in it. And then pending which sort of plans we're doing, you know, the Boris County will be done in the Seth Rayner style. So they haven't seen it yet, but it's the old school blueprint with the, you know, super crude kind of hatching. The Donald Ross stuff looks like his black and orange field notes with um, the intricate sort of, bunker details that uh walter hatch and those guys or walter johnson would have done for him um uh and then some are just sort of our own style um and then i do take other drone photos and make perspectives so i will take like a drone photo of like that 15th hole at cedarbrook um where we had this green that was elevated seven feet in the sky and i sort of drew with a punch bully sort of slopes and um now uh, with Nick's help, we add, uh, you know, he. I'll do the black and white line drawings and he'll add in the color and layer in the photo behind it um, in a pretty realistic way. And um, I think it adds, you know, more support to some of these. So in the end, we end up with like, you know, about a 50 page book. And the beginning has, if you're Morris County, you have all those big historic documents and some things at the front, but it tells you you know, why we're doing green expansions or why we're, you know, tree removal is important here or there or the history of the place or um, why at Cedarbrook we bumped out the approaches so people could run the ball in, um, you know, the kind of key elements of, of the plan. Because uh, everybody, you know, you could write a big document and a big, you know, 
long thing is a master plan and most people wouldn't really read the whole thing. The couple guys in the committee would, but a lot of people would be lost. And if you give people plans, not everybody is able to visualize everything. So yeah. I feel like this has a little bit of everything. Um, you know, the guys that want to read absolutely everything in the club, it's everything's in there for them, but a lot of it's sort of visual based and not so much writing because people have a hard, you know, they just won't read it if it's just, just, so you need a little bit of everything. It's it's interesting to me that like in a way when you give them less information, it allows a little bit more freedom, but the way it's going with like render with some of these renderings, they're so like, Hey, this is what we're going to build. I could eventually see people being like, wait, it doesn't look like this, you know? And, and like what some of the, it's some of the most, the best part about the golf architecture is being there and making changes on the fly as you feel and see things. Yes, uh, absolutely. I guess it also depends, you know, who's doing that drawing. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing the drawing and I'm doing the shaping. So I basically have a year through the master plan process to stand there and work out my first couple moves at the very least and the vision for the bulldozer. I don't then have to take it three years later when we finally got the master plan complete and then the funding and then this other contractor. And then I bring my other shaper guy or his con and then like, Hey, so this is kind of what we were thinking. We were kind of like, I just get it go. And so I feel like I'll change things and some things like a green contour or green, like it won't be super incredibly detailed and that stuff. But I think the people with Cedarbrook would tell you, like, eh, it actually is reasonably close. You know, the bunkering on 10 is definitely different. There's little things here there. Um, but I feel like it helps me stay a little closer. As the guy that started his career working for Tom, who's like, nah, plans are stupid. And like, <laughs> I, I, like, he hates drawing. Like, they hate doing it. You know, Don's done this amazing thing behind me, and he's incredible. And he could absolutely do it. But Tom just didn't value it as much. Um, and I think on probably a newer project, it'd be way harder to do this amount of stuff. But in the consulting master plan world, I think it's virtually required. And the, you know, I think it makes a, you know, I feel pretty proud that like, of like these, these master plan books we've been able to create. Um, I feel like they're about as cool as any sort of deliverable you can give the club and have them feel comfortable that this is this is what we're getting and they kind of know it it's it, it definitely the expectation is is changing and it seems like it's changing rapidly like in terms of like what you get from a a master plan like it is becoming more and more thorough more and more in depth than ever before with with the you know the visual capabilities today like that i think has has dramatically changed in the last like really like two years uh, of golf architecture. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Club Champion. Listen, you know, we talked about it at the Open. Rory's making tweaks to his driver setup, to his putter setup. These are the types of things you could do also. You get a tour-level fit 
and customization if you go to Club Champion. Uh, what I love most about Club Champion is it's a set it and forget it situation. When I go there, I get my clubs and I never, ever think about changing clubs. I don't ever look in somebody else's bag and have envy because I know that I got the exact perfect fit for myself. So they have 50,000 customizable options there between shaft and head combinations. Uh, it is your one-stop shop to get dialed in for golf season, which for the, you in the n- northern parts of the country, it's coming right around the corner. I'm, I'm sure you're getting antsy, ready to get out there. Great way to get ready for the golf season is visit Club Champion. Uh, if you use the promo code Fried Egg, you will get 50% off a fitting with a club purchase. So if you use the promo code Fried Egg when you schedule your fitting, you'll get 50% off your fitting costs with the club purchase. So if you're looking for a single club, new set of clubs, go to Club Champion uh, and, and try out everything and and find what's best for you. Now back to Jaegerkovic. You have an interesting mix of uh, renovation and restoration clients. You know, yeah. I would, I think that it, it, you know, there are, there are a lot of people that, you know, do a ton of restoration work of golden age architecture, don't do a ton of mm-hmm. renovation work. You're early in your career. And to me, one of the things that stands out is there's a good mixture of both. Which one do you, uh, you know, would you say you gravitate a little bit more towards? You don't want to answer this question, but <laughs> I, I don't. I don't gravitate. To, I mean, really, I, I I feel like it's the the doing the different stuff um, that is what keeps it interesting. Like it's it's trying to build in different styles and do different things and think about different. Yeah, I, I find that the most interesting, and it probably makes you better and. Uh, you know, you don't just keep building the same sort of stuff. You know, McDonald Rainer stuff is very different than the Tillinghast stuff or the the super trenchy kind of little bunkers that we're going to be doing at Tavistock, which is Alexander Finlay um, or the Donald Rock. Like, and then we have crazy sandscapes out at Laurel Links, and the bunkers at Manhattan Woods uh, are definitely cranked to a volume like very few other places. Um, and that's entirely my own stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I find that fun. Um, I just, I, I like doing different things. It seems, it seems like restoration is like, it's more of like a history project versus the renovation stuff is, is where you get, you would get to like, let loose a little bit more. Right. And, and, and put your own spin. Yeah. It's more of, it's, yeah, it's more of this is the answer, right? Once like you get to the answer of this is how it was, and then it's once you're there on site, it's like, okay, how can I get it to this as fast as I can? And it's a different sort of you're going straight from A to B there as fast as you can, where the other stuff has less of a clear solution. And uh, in, in many ways, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, but every place you're always doing some sort of history. You're doing some sort of thing or there's a lot of, I don't know. There's a lot of similar themes throughout, I would say. Um, A lot of the principles and making things, maximizing properties and making things 
better for, you know, memberships of 200 to 300 people. Like it might look different. Uh, there might be different styles you're there, but a lot of the general kind of make it that golf course as fun as possible. Uh, that, that never goes away. What, uh, what part of, of renovation, especially, I mean, you've got some kind of mid century work. You've got, uh, you were, you consult at a Gary player design. You consult at a design, uh, Cedar Brook that's in the, was built in what the sixties, right? Well, they had, they had the 1919 Tillinghast and then they moved properties to, and then they got, uh, basically a 1960s, like sort of RTJ knockoff from William Mitchell. So that was like this weird blend of the both, right? That was the um, take some of this Tillinghast history and mix it with their property that's different and honestly way better than their old one. So yeah, that was, I was like, you know, one of those kind of both things, which was a lot of fun, you know, for the kid that grew up catting at Quaker and, writing the 20 page thesis in college on tilling house and all that good stuff to like, you know, getting out there and trying to, you know, make the back half of number 10 look like, or play like some of the back half of the ninth green at Wingfoot West. And the bunker in the front is kind of like two center or Ridgewood or one at Quaker. And then, you know, maybe the tee shot had a little bit of, you know, the bunker on the right, Scott, seven at Ridgewood East and a little bit of something else on the other side. So yeah, I mean, I, I quite enjoyed that. It's, you know, that was fun. I mean, I probably wouldn't have naturally gravitated to like that style had there not been some sort of historic twist to it. What's So what's the most challenging part of, of the renovation work? Like taking something that exists and turning into something else? I guess probably figuring out what is the proper blend of how much to change and how much to leave the same. Are you sticking with the same routing? Are you changing certain greens? Are you changing all the greens? Are you changing, you know, then if beyond that you get into like, are you doing phase projects? Are you, can you handle doing half the bunkers in one style, half in another, like, you know, coming up with the consistency stuff and the playability stuff throughout becomes a different sort of challenge um, as you go through that. I I imagine that it, it's like, you know, in, in a lot of cases, you would, you know, the easiest perspective is I, we can start from scratch, change everything, blow up everything. But the the financial and, you know, shutdown period is probably not uh, palatable for most clubs. So then it becomes like, if we're going to do two holes, how do we get to 18 eventually? And how much are we, are we changing? Yeah. And which ones worth it are the most, which greens or holes are the most, you know, how do you pick, you know, um, where it, so that's kind of, you know, it's a lot of listening and then it's a lot of using my imagination and showing them what it could be and then working as a committee to figure out where the best, you know, what they want, where the best value is and that sort of stuff. You know, I think to a certain degree, some of the job is to show them what the potential could be. But at the same time, so many of these clubs, you have 300 people that joined and play there like 
dozens of times a year and love these clubs and they don't necessarily want to do that. And they probably shouldn't do it either in the majority of cases, uh, like, you know, blow the whole thing up is what I mean. But so, you know, you have to f- learn and over the court, you know, that's why I really, you know, it, it takes a generally the like proposal and interview process at these, you know, it takes a few months, a lot of times, and you're trying to listen and feel out what the general, you know, and propose what you feel is sort of the right, decision and then over the next year you can really fine-tune that um and understand more of what's really going on underground what really need needs to be changed or updated and what can we also do and how do you maximize the property and make sure the place is like you know the best for these 200 300 people or whatever but also sometimes there's places that are you know single owners type things versus you know equity club and it adds wrinkles here or there to some of the stuff and yeah it really makes them all different every time a little news obviously it's the biggest story in golf i i'm curious from your perspective as a golf architect what your thoughts were on the usga distance announcement and uh model local rule that was uh you know the idea that professional golf at the highest level of amateur golf will will use a a different ball that flies a little bit shorter than than the the ball that we have right now yeah um i think uh i think in general they made what seemed to me as to be the only uh, like the 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 option right i think you know in terms of the specifics of how far it actually does roll back um i guess i have a little bit of hard time understanding exactly how many yards they think some of these guys are going to be going and some of these like you know we're taking the 100 was it 127 or these swing speeds and how they calculate it i guess i don't i guess in general it seems like i probably lean on the camp that's like maybe it's not going totally back far enough but I think in general, they made the pretty right decision with the local rule and the bifurcation and the pro game only. And, um, you know, it doesn't seem like the ball is going to be any squirrelier. It's just going to go maybe 15 yards less for the best guys for a little bit or for the most average player. And then to be determined from there, I guess. But um, yeah. In a, in a way, it seems like the ball's actually going to be less squirrely because if you just knock off distance but don't change spin, you know, it's just not going to go as far, right? So then yeah, it's going to go less offline in a way. I, I think, yeah, so I don't know. I, I've been chatting with some of my friends, whatever, and I think I guess what I sort of, why I it's maybe not perhaps far enough in my ideal version is like you want you want the par fives to matter and you want the best players in the world and whether the pros or the leading amateurs or whatever you know everybody thinks it's just the pro game but like the back tee stuff and the things like that's an issue for me it like most places i go to in one way or another but uh you want people hitting like every you know variety of clubs in a par threes you want long irons you want this you want par fives to be able to to matter um what's what's that mean what's that mean par fives to matter just you know 
in your opinion? Yeah, I think you want you want the ability to have like real three shot whole like it takes three strokes to get there at least on occasion. Um, you know, for pretty much everyone, I'd I'd like to see what you know how Rory you know would really think through that sort of stuff on a more regular basis. This isn't going to do that. They're not going to be hitting, you know, unless it's like, you know, the crazy hole at Oakmont or Wingfoot. Like, they're still not really hitting many of those super long par threes for the most part or things like that. Or the long irons in the par four. Like, you know, he's just not really doing it. It's, it's longer. It's not, you know, but whatever. It's um, it's, at, it's interesting. Last, know, year, last year at the Masters, 15 was obviously lengthened and then they got a, a little bit unconventional of a wind and it was playing into the wind. And what I found, I found it to be very, very compelling because it brought some of that, like, you know, they use this term for 13, but this momentous decision where it wasn't an automatic, I'm pulling out the long yeah. iron and going for it decision. And you start to sog, you start to sog, see guys lay up, right? you know, right edge of the fairway, left edge of the fairway. And then when people went for it, it all of a sudden built this drama, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, they're going for it. And I think this is something that like amateur golfers have, but at the professional game, it's almost just been like, take out the longest. If you miss the fairway, take out the longest yep. club you can hit from the lie and just get it up there as close as you can and just dump it up there anywhere. And you're fine. If it- yeah. And, and if who there's knows never if an changes. option, they pull out the unfair word. You know, I guess that, you know, the other thing is like, you know, are we going to really let the old, you know, is the old course, when's the old course going to be relevant for me? You know, you want that to be relevant, right? Don't you as like an architect and architect, like you need, yeah. Um, you wish maybe it was like an extra 15% when they went to, you know, over there a little bit. I think that's the thing that I wonder about is, I fear just from the USJ's history, like to me, this isn't a situation where it's like, we're going to start here. We're going to see how it goes and we're going to tweak it from there. To me, when the USGA and the way they've gone about this decision-making process, I mean, this has been a very long process. This is more of a, we're doing this and this is what's going to happen. This is not like a a company that's trying out something new to to help their culture. And it's like, a, hey, let's try this for and see where it goes and adapt it. This to me seems more like, hey, we're going to enact this law. And it we aren't we there. It doesn't feel to me like there's going to be a lot of uh, rigidity in in the, you know, because to me, it would be very compelling if there was like, hey, this is the range we're looking at. And, you know, there's a high end and a low end and we want to see some testing and we want to see how this plays out before we settle on exactly where we want to go. Yeah, I mean, and I get why that would be a difficult thing to propose on a large scale. Like that's a difficult like that's not the way the government goes about approving laws, right? I'm not sure how they approve anything sometimes uh yeah i i listen i i think that they they're right to dig their heels in and say we're doing this and to like i appreciate that i i probably nitpick it and keep you know wanting you know i get it um i'm sure it seems like there's a whole bunch of other people that you know think we're 
out to sea. Um, I hopefully will be here in, uh, you know, Tiger tell uh, the webs uh, to relax a little bit um, in Augusta. I hope, I hope he, he has, you know, just says what he's generally said for the last long while about the ball. Um, I would imagine we probably get that press conference at Augusta, right? Yeah. Hopefully. Obviously, no laying up this week had Rory talking about it and how much he yep. he he wants it to uh, change. So that's it's I think like, you know, it's got to be a top down thing. I think I that's the one thing I do think is that like, I mean, from your perspective, is distance a problem at clubs? Like is is distance a problem at a, at your local country club? Is it a, a exclusively a PGA Tour problem, a high, a high level amateur golf problem? Or is it a problem at club? No, I, I so like you know I, I I was talking about this with my friends uh, when this stuff came out. I mean, it was like a you know couple days long, never ending you know this that the other thing, and like you know your work isn't like you know you're not the the work you did at the country club or uh, the U.S. Open tees at LA Country Club that they're playing that you built like handful of years ago. Like you don't do that work anymore. Like you know. <laughs> Your clients aren't guild clients. I'm like, they're not hosting that stuff. I'm like, you're right. But we have, you know, US Open qualifiers. We're at a handful of these clubs. Uh, Manhattan Woods, Knickerbocker have held them. Patterson holds them sometimes. Not that they, honestly, the qualifiers, they really don't use the back tees because they're so worried that those guys that think they should be playing from all the way back there they freaking robo get out of bounds constantly and like they'll shoot 97 they won't get enough people through uh to finish but like the clubs and some of the members like we deal with it i think in a lot of cases you know we're still trying to make it like the best you know harder for the best players at the club and in some cases like there's a one of the sharpest dog legs you've ever seen on a par five is uh, the 15th hole at Tavistock. And these guys just go up and over like an L of trees. And the average player can't even reach halfway to like the L in the dog leg, if you can sort of imagine what I'm saying. And then they have to like bunt a seven iron up to get just to the corner of it and then play back around the like boomerang shape. So like, yeah, we're dealing with it. And I got to set bunkers that, you know, some of the the scratch are, you know, really good players in club championship stuff. And then the, the tees that really need to go even further. And you got to figure out how to make it fun for everybody. And a lot of the cases, right, as we've seen throughout, uh, you could use a Rodemink or Ridgewood as great examples of the restorations I did with Gilt. Like those things are super historically accurate bunker positioning, things like that. There's a few places here or there where things got rolled a little bit here or there, but you know, we did a lot of it with tees and stretching things back and repositioning stuff occasionally with that as well. But you just sort of let at those places, the history and the, you know, we have 300 some odd, whatever members, and we're just going to do the right thing for them and let those guys take it apart at that point. Um, so there's some of that as well. Um, and not worry too much about it and just go play golf and, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, we get a lot of the, the, the like hitting in the wrong fairway thing with the distance stuff is probably the scarier thing to me, the hitting it like the further offline thing, like I'm the scarier and more like, harder things I think to deal with than just the pure distance mm-hmm. at sort of my level. Um, That's, I, 
as someone and everybody's heard of this, I've, I've played a, like basically a persimmon driver for the last year. The biggest thing that I tell people I noticed is like, I don't miss it fairways over anymore. Like when I hit a really bad tee shot, it's like 15 yards offline, uh, like 15 yards into the rough. It's not going like, and I played, I played modern equipment the other day and I hit some drives. I hit a modern driver and I was hitting some drives like real, I like, way outside the window that I had become accustomed to playing in, you know, where it was feasible. It was like, Oh, this can go into the other fairway. And that's something that was unavailable. It can go, it can go, it can go up and over the trees and across the road and across to hit the other house on the second story. And that's where I, in a way you've never imagined. I think what I hope from this is that this becomes like a top down adaptation for the world of golf, because like, that's the biggest issue to me is that the there is like a, a a distance problem in the sense of like how far fifteen handicaps that are long can hit it offline, you know, right reg, with regularity, you know, versus the you know like that is a, a real problem because it's you know whether it's houses nearby and the different things that you have to do to mitigate that issue. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy because like we're talking about this stuff and then you know my friends bust my balls and i had to use your club champion code because i don't hit it as far enough you know i had the old stuff and i'm losing the 15 yards or whatever they said they got me 21 yards we'll find out if it ever greens up around here um but but like you know that well that i i played with a, a buddy's driver yeah and i couldn't believe it like i was worried about a bunker Based off of, I, I've been using a 2013 driver. Yeah, before, mine, mine was before I went to the persimmon. Mine was about was you know 2015 I, during the Ridgewood project, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, I I was worried. I there's I'm not going to use the numbers because I did not want to sound like a humble brag, but it was into the wind, into a cold wind, mm-hmm. and I that was that bunker was right at a number I used to really worry about, and I hit this driver and it. I hit it really good, but it flew by 15 yards. I was like, whoa, wait, wait a second. This is, this is what these new drivers are like. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's not how I play, but I have to deal with guys that do that. And then I'll be out working on a hole and I'll be working on the longest fairway bunker where the guys, you know, like you can hit it up into the thing and we'll do some actual, like some things to the bunker. So if you get it in the furthest part of the bunker, it's way worse than if you're at the shortest part of the bunker, because, you know, that's just one thing I've sort of factored into my designs here there, where I think I can sort of help make, you know, design to this issue. But while I'm in that bunker shaping it, there's a, like a ravine water carry thing. That's like 195 and all these freaking general, the members that play every day from the blue tees or whatever, and they can't get it over the freaking 200 yard carry and they've got all the new stuff and they got, and I'm like, you know, it's everybody thinks they can do it and they can't. And then it's so, it's so strange. It's really tough. And then, you know, you got forward tees to add everywhere. The white, the, the, you know, the T if you only got a set of four tees at some of these clubs, you got the championship, the general, the like, standard bend member right the sort of that white you know senior read sort of t that's never really in the right position because those guys don't want to go far enough and whatever it's it's such a wide range um of of stuff to factor in 
Um, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I, that's one thing that is like the distance as the distance gap gets wider that doesn't get talked about enough is the need for more tees. And you can do these combo tees, but they're hard. To, they're hard. They're hard to use. Like you have to have a scorecard to understand where you're supposed to play. Yeah. You know, like and and tees, obviously, like greens are expensive. Tees aren't cheap. Like it's not cheap to build new tee boxes. Yeah. It's, like that is not it. it it's not you got to take the grass off then you got to take the mix out then you got to reshape it and move it around so that requires new irrigation and you know then you got to shape it and you got to put back and then new drainage new mix six inches of mix you gotta you know that's not cheap uh you gotta laser level it you gotta fill the topsoil back up you gotta buy the sod you gotta lay the sod you gotta pay someone to rake all the dirt like there's just so many different light items it adds up um, if you're going to do it with all those materials. Um, so yeah, it's not it's not as cheap as you'd think. You know, just go level out a spot and throw some grass on it. Like that works some places, but that's mostly not the expectation. Uh, you know, a lot of times, like you kind of end up going back to like these really, really long, big, sort of connected, free flowy, almost like uh, you know, slightly more artistic version of the rtj runway tee but like you kind of in some ways either need something like that and move stuff around or you just have a bunch of pods or you just um you know uh limit yourself why why reese why reese would just build eight of those decks every uh every hole uh maybe that seems like a lot Anyways, uh, I had you prepare something. I want to get to it since uh, since we uh, we're running here near an hour. I wanted to talk. Uh, I had you prepare the power rankings of the UK. So areas. The idea would be, you know, how you would rank. We're, we're gonna have you're you're who's defining the geography? Is you it are. Danny Johnson Fried Egg? You, egg I, I, weirdo I, geography or what? You're 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 just just you're you're the boss here. I'm trying to plan my next UK trip and uh and so anyways this was kind okay. of a selfish ask because I wanted to see where yeah, how how you I would, kind of figured how, I, how you would how I, you would shake out these different areas of the UK and uh in terms of, of uh where you'd most want to go uh, for for golf trips in a centralized location. Yeah, I kind of figured you had some sort of uh, twist to it. Um, so I threw out, to start with, Ireland and Wales. Uh, I've never been to Ireland. I really would like to go to Ireland. I don't know the Ireland geography super well and how you'd split it up. So Scotland, I left that England. off. Correct. All right. That's good. Narrowing it down already. You know, I some of the courses I most want to see in the world are in Ireland. I'll say that. You know, then you have this like, you know, UK thing. I don't know. Well, I left it up. Um, I basically chopped up Scotland into like four categories. You got the Highlands. You got the St. Andrews. You got the... Midlothian, Muirfield, North Berwick, centralized trip, and then you got the West Coast. Okay. And then for London, uh, England rather, you know, I put like what I've done in England, it's really been London, but you can drive two hours to the English Channel 
and like break up that London trip. So is that English Channel its own destination or is it part of London? We'll we'll say that's its own destination because I feel like London is a huge, huge trip. You could you could be there. But I feel like where people screw up their London trips to go play at the Heathland Golf the first time is they go see six Colt courses all down the street from each other when you could have played three, driven to the coast, played St. George's, Deal, Rye, and then driven back and played three more. And you actually remember the differences and you get everything. All right. Well, so then that could be your, that could be like, that's why I go into, that's why, that's why, you know, I'm going to go to New York City, but you drive, you play, you know, out in the Hamptons, you get a little Westchester, maybe you squeeze one in New Jersey, but it's like a New York City trip. All right. Well, that's it's your it's your show here. So so if you're going to do that, I think that's got to be probably number one. So it's the combination of of London plus the English Channel. Right. Because you get your St. George's, your open championship Rota course, you get deal one of the most fun links and rye one of truly the best courses of England and probably one of the most fun links as well. And you can combine that with your Walton Heath, your Sunningdale, your St. George's Hill. You can add in all sorts of little things, you know, around that. Um, I think if you just did 10 days straight in Surrey, it'd be great, but I think you'd lose, they'd start to blend together you know, and the list uh, in London, like it's crazy. I mean, you can do different things in between these things, right? You can, you can skip out to Royal Ashdown forest on the way in between. Right. And that's something you wouldn't see anywhere. The, the course with the no bunkers, you know, the last time, I think one of the first times we were on the pod, we were talking about the Addington yeah. and that was before the changes. And I was telling you that like, if there's one golf course in the world that I would buy or whatever, it'd be that one. And, and now you have guys that are saying it's like the greatest restoration in history. And we're like four years later. So, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I have a hard time not putting that as number one. Um, in, a, in a power rankings, number two, I'm going to go with Scottish Highlands. All right. Uh, because, you know, I, it's a little crummy to leave out the old course or, you know, I think this the is North Berwick Muirfield. This is where people would Dornick. people would struggle to say, I'm going to the Highlands because it's like you, you look at East Lothian and it's like, oh, I could play North Berwick, Muirfield and a bunch of other courses. And in the Highlands, it's like yeah, you got Dornick. I, I didn't feel... Yeah, right. So you have a 10 in Muirfield and you have one of my three favorite courses in the world, North Berwick West, like without a doubt. But uh, Kilspindy's cool. I didn't think um, the Gullens were that amazing. It's it's a great trip. I've really enjoyed it. The Renaissance Club is all right um, while you're in there as well. But I mean, if you do the Highlands, you could fly into Aberdeen. You get Royal Aberdeen. You can go up to, you can, you know, Castle Stewart's got one course. It's going to have two, and that's going to become way better here shortly, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you get Cruden Bay, which is all world really good. You get Dornick, which at, you get at least 110. Um, pretty much no matter how you split like any of the Scotland or England trips, you're not going to get more than one dope 10 unless you move around between these, these spots. So that gets you the 10, but you, you know, Brora with the, the grazing, I mean, that's a pretty 
hard thing to turn down. And you can always supplement in your Nairn, your Fraser Bro, your uh, Rob Aberdeen's. Like, there's a lot of other things up there as well to add in. I don't even know where you'd factor in your uh, Glen Eagles. Is that Highlands or is it somewhere? more St. Andrews-y, like Tom put it in one of the older guides. So then, you know, I think you have a toss-up in some ways. Do you want to do the history and do you want to do this St. Andrews and the Carnoustie and the King's Barns and all the cool stuff around there? I think the other thing with the other thing with that trip is is staying in St. Andrews, having like the college oh, yeah. town. You have like, like you, you have a lot more things that, to do at night. That like, was my first trip. Mm-hmm. My first trip was to there you know, and knocked out those big three. I think, you know, if you have, if that's a great way to go, um, there's no doubt, you know, it's funny though. Cause like, I also had the West coast of Scotland is like super high. Cause so many people, you know, uh, you, you got Presswick, you got the one, well, I guess that guess you, I don't know. You count Turnberry as an open road up, but you got Turnberry or Troon over there. Troon, Probably not the quality of Prestwick or the other, but they're pretty solid. Macrahanish, if you wanted to drive down there, I've never done it. I'd love to. That uh, Western Gales, those were two I felt like I really missed out on. Um, but the north and the west of England, I think, you know, I haven't been there. Uh, it's that's with Ireland, that's probably one of the places I want to see over there in the UK the most. All the I guess it's sort of hard to define that sort of middle chunk, your Liverpool areas, your, you know, your old original Mackenzie sort of stuff there. Yeah. There's, there's links courses. There's the stuff inside. There's a lot of cool stuff up there that I'd really like to see, but now you're in, you know, the five or six uh, numbers of your, your power ranking there. So how far down the list do you go? So, so to recap it, you've got, you've got London English channel one, then you go Highlands, then you go three, you're going with Fife. Yeah. Then four East Lothian. Yeah. Which is crazy in looking back on it. It's not, I don't, I don't really care for that, but that's what we said. And then five, five, you've got the West, West coast of Scotland. How do you put one of the three favorite course, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Screw it. Let's do it. Could you make an argument that East Lothian has the two top, the two best courses of of any of the regions? Hmm. Yeah, sure, absolutely. You can make that argument. You got a ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's. Yeah, I just think the list at the top. I think once you are off those top two, it drops off. So for like a week, unless you're doing you know, multiple days at each, which are beyond worth it, like beyond worth it. That's what I did. I, you know, I had two days at the beer field and two days at two or three rounds in North Bear. Like that was, that was worth it. Um, I just not sure I would, if you were going to spend a week, I feel like I'd get in the car and I'd drive somewhere else than spend the week there entirely. I just, you know, that's this is see this is great this is i think that's where that that's a important distinction right um and so but it it doesn't does it really matter because the last time i went over there i played the old course with clyde and then the next day we drove across and it's snowed overnight to play presswick so like 
to an American, it, some of the driving doesn't seem like that big a deal. Some people like to stay, so, you know, you move once, move twice, you know, I don't know. How long are you going for? Yeah, that's a good question. All right. Well, there, this is now in the in the sand. This is your power ranking. So, so when, you have to live with it. So which one are you going? You're, where are you going? I don't know. I haven't Let's decided. Get it on the record. I haven't decided. Looking at I'm looking at Ireland, Highlands, or uh, London. Those are my three that I'm kind of eyeing. So, as someone that did St Andrews and Midlothian, yeah, I haven't done all of St Andrews. That's the thing. I do. I do want to get back and do like the full. Thing. Yeah, you were I, there for the tournament. Yeah, I, I I only saw I only saw two courses there. I uh, you know, I need to. Right, yeah, but I, I mean, was I was thing. in the town like, for if a you week. Could, yeah, if there was, you know, by some magical circumstance, you know, you were able to play the old course like a handful of times in a week. That's that's probably what you'd pick. Yeah, that's see, that's the thing. That was what I'd pick. What you like know, it's the, just hard to guarantee that. You know, it's hard to. And it, I guess all these places are all sold out from COVID for like years. I guess, and the Americans all queued up. The thing that you you made a point about North Berwick and Muirfield, and I think like one of my regrets, like, and this is like the hard thing. We had the, we got, you know, kind of presented to us the opportunity to play the old course the Tuesday after the Open, you know, and yeah, and we we like we paused for a little bit, and the guy that offered this up was like, "Wait, all right, what what do you think about?" It? The reason we were thinking about it was because we had thirty six holes lined up at North Berwick. And we were like, well, we kind of yeah. want to do all day at North Berwick. Like, that was like the thing. Yeah. Like, I really wanted to play North Berwick twice. And it ended up what happened was we played North Berwick in the morning, got in the car, drove to the old course, played that, and then drove all the way back to North Berwick where we were staying. Yeah. And it was like, you know, that was a really long day. Do I regret going and seeing both of them? Absolutely not. But one of my big regrets was not getting 36 holes, getting to go around North Berwick again. You know, because that's where yeah. I think you you uh, that's where you start to appreciate the truly great courses is every single time you play them, they get better. And that's the thing that is hard with Scotland and hard for anybody. But like, you know, yeah. it, how'd you how, how'd you play the how'd you play the the pit? Did you did you end up hitting it off the wall? Did you go I, over? Oh, did you I just, play all the way out. I just hit right? a massive block, just a huge Okay. Cataclysmic block. Just and then I had I think I I think I I ended up over the green and then I chipped up and made par. But you know, Brendan hit it right up against the wall. He had to hit a little chip right over it. Okay. All right. So at least you got up to interact with it like a little bit. But yeah. Like, I really I one of my favorite holes out there is the hole before the pit. I love yeah. that hole. I love I love that like little mid that not short par four, but, you know, shorter par four that plays like kind of up over a hill. You don't know really where you're going. And then that green that sits there right on the on the water. I think that's like I think that's the most beautiful hole out there. Personally, there's so many good ones there. It's so good. Uh, The thing that I was taken aback by were how good the greens were. Like, I don't know, like every green. You're just like, God, this is an amazing green. And just the way they kind of sit on the ground and everything. Definitely some of the more interesting links greens. There are certainly some links courses where the green contours are just, uh, you know, don't quite have the maybe the energy that you 
think they might have given the landforms around and they're much simpler and whatever, but North Barrett comes with it all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. What's, <laughs> what's the weakest no hole? Joke. What's the weakest hole at North Barrick? This is a question that I hated that somebody asked me. The reason this question, this is one of the hardest questions I think to answer when you play the best courses. I don't know. Is it like maybe one of those par fives? Like eight? Yeah. I really like eight though. I like the green. I this I like the tee shot. It's tough. I don't know. I mean, one's great. 18's also good, even though they're, you know, sneaky similar to St. Andrews. It's not a place with a lot of weak holes. I mean, I don't know. The the par three with the in the bathtub, it's cool. Is it like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'd probably say. Question nobody wants right to now, answer. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. You know, what's the what's the worst hole at Dalyneal? You pick. Your turn. Dalyneal? Same thing. Um, yeah, same thing. They're they're very similar in terms like if you just played it on that that same thing, right? You just you just came from Sand Hills, you had an opportunity, you had to crank through Dalyneal in one round and then you had to be off like you'd love it, but you'd be pissed because you didn't really get it. Got that that's a hard question, the Dalyneal. Maybe um it's no harder than the North Barrick one. It's the same thing. Maybe th- is it thirteen or fourteen that has the uh, the centerline bunkers? Mm, they both do. The, one's a longer hole. Yeah, one's the a longer the hole. longer one. That okay. I don't yeah. I don't know if it necessarily works perfect. I don't. I feel like you can't get to the spot reliably. Like it's just like it's it would be so silly to try and hit it left. So then you just like kind of have to play to the right. And then you're it, in the shitty spot. There's more room to the right than most people really believe or will play for. So they often find more trouble uh, than they. And then if you end up in one of those gnarly centerline bunk, which are just some of the craziest bunkers like out there, uh, it is there a mess. You you're probably making an X. Uh, sixteen sixteen would be the that. other one because I just don't think the tee shot works great. Interesting. You know, I probably, I, I would have picked 17. I think the green is, I just think it doesn't work as well as some of the other ones. But um, I find that the tee shot on 16 extremely compelling, trying to, for me, just rope one in there all the way down and down into that bowl of achievement, as it's uh, nicknamed. Mm-hmm. So do you want to set your you want to set your power rankings to to camp uh, or you know or you want to see five courses or you two courses and play them over and over again? I don't think it would be you know um, you know prudent for me for the audience to just sit at two courses and play them for a week straight and tell them about it. I think uh, you know I have to go I have to go see a bunch as many courses as I can, which is the hard thing. Yeah, I mean. I'm generally about that as well, but you know, some days, sometimes, yeah, some are worth it. Yeah, some of the courses you want to marry, you know, some of them. That's <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> those those are the best ones, are the ones that you're like, I, I I this is the one I want to play all the time. So yeah, hey, I appreciate the time as always. Uh, good catching up. Um, really happy that you are uh, you were are get, getting quite busy and. Uh, Look forward to seeing some of your work here uh, this year. 
Yeah, man. I uh, appreciate it. Always good to catch up. And uh, you definitely got to come uh, see some of these these new greens we were talking about uh, at the start of this. I think that would be uh, that would be great. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Jaeger. Um, and I'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by Matt Ruches. Thank you, Matt. As a quick reminder, we've got uh, boots on the ground next week at Anwa. So Garrett and Meg Adkins will be going down to uh, the Augusta National Women's Amateur. Uh, Brendan and I will be on the ground for the Masters. So we will be, you know, the team will be divided and conquering Augusta National in the next two weeks. The best way to uh, stay up to date with everything we're doing around those events is to sign up for the Fried Egg newsletter. It's free. Go to thefriedegg.com and uh, there should be a bar right across the the main page there enter your email you're in it's monday wednesday friday and uh thank you guys we'll be daily during the uh the masters on that but thank you guys for the support as always and we'll be back next week with a new episode of the podcast (laughs) 